Surprise! You thought you had to wait another week for a new episode. Well, guess what? We're coming at you with a very special mini episode that's all about the hosts behind the mics. Bob, Aaron, and I are each going to take the hot seat over the next few weeks and interview each other. We hope you'll get to know each of us a little bit more and why we even started this podcast in the first place. So please enjoy. Hi, Bob. Hey, Meredith. How are you today? Good. How are you? Good to see you, Aaron. Good to see you. I thought it'd be a little fun to give our listeners kind of some insight into who we are and how we tick and why we're doing this podcast. So we are going to introduce one of our co-hosts, Bob, Aaron, or myself, Meredith Black, and talk a little bit about why we're doing this. So Bob, you're in the hot seat. Awesome. Are you ready? We're going to do a little short round of questions, very similar to what you do to our guests. So now it's your turn. I know the drill. Okay, Don't here we go. Don't too hard about this. Yes, ma'am. All right. San Francisco Giants or LA Dodgers? San Francisco Giants. Dogs or raccoons? Dogs. <laughs> <laughs> Journal or voice memo? Journal. Doc Martens or Birkenstocks? I'm going to go with Doc Martens on this one. Spring or fall? Fall. Steve Jobs or Elon Musk? Steve Jobs. It's not even close. <laughs> Nonfiction or fiction? Nonfiction. Classical music or rap music? Classical. Beatles or Rolling Stones? Beatles. David Letterman or Stephen Colbert? I'm going to go with Letterman on that one. Hedgehog or possum? I'm going with hedgehog. Although I like possums. Possums are cool, but I'm sticking with hedgehog. Mostly because of the movie. Texting on the phone or talking on the phone? Definitely texting, not even close. Would you rather be invisible or have a super strength? I'd rather have super strength. Meat or vegetables? Hmm. I'm going veggies. I think you're just doing that. I think I am. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Virtue or sin? Virtue. The Godfather or Star Wars? Star Wars. Nebraska or Kansas? Hmm. I'm going to go Kansas. Work hard or play hard? Work hard, I think. Okay, last one. Okay. Ninjas or pirates? I'm, I'm going to go with ninjas on that one. Although it's close. All right. Well, thanks for doing that. I feel yep. like we got to know a little bit more about you. I'm going to get you some Birkenstocks. I mean, some Doc Martens for, for nice, Christmas. Nice. Okay, that sounds better. <laughs> I hear they take a long time to break in. <laughs> I know. Get you some nice thick socks, too, so you don't get some blisters. Super awesome. So, Bob, tell me, where did you grow up? I grew up in Dallas, Texas. And when did you move to the Bay Area? I moved to Silicon Valley on Labor Day of 1990 which was the weekend of my 27th birthday. And did you have a plan for why you wanted to come to the Bay Area? I had gotten a job with a software company called Claris, which was a wholly owned subsidiary of Apple. And I moved for the job. I was also in the middle of getting divorced in Dallas. And so it was a nice way to kind of get a, a bit of a fresh restart. What was that experience like? That must have been a lot. You're changing jobs, marriage dissolving, everything is reset. Yeah, it was stressful as hell. You know, they they say the three hardest things to change is your primary relationship, where you live, and where you work. And I changed all three at the same time. 
Yeah. It's not something I would recommend people do. I think I went into it really naively. The job opened up and it, you know, it seemed way more interesting than anything I was in, doing in Dallas. And thank goodness I took the job. I mean, it's responsible for everything that's really happened in my life since. But it was incredibly disorienting. I'd only been to the Bay Area once. I had no particular affinity for the Bay Area at the time. I never had any ambitions to work in Silicon Valley or anything like that. It didn't really mean much to me in 1990 at that age. But I showed up here and it, you know, it ended up feeling like home. So I just ended up being really, really lucky. But I do remember landing in the plane and I got a rental car. The company was, you know, got me a rental car. They got me a temporary housing. And I got in the car. I had, I didn't have a map. I didn't know where I was. I just started driving. And, you know, again, just sort of luckily, I ended up driving north, ended up on El Camino, which those of you who know Silicon Valley know it's sort of a main thoroughfare. It's not a freeway, but it's kind of a main thoroughfare that runs through the valley. And I just started driving north. And it turned out that I drove through all the towns I would eventually live in. And then in my particular case, and it's sort of funny, but it's also meaningful, as I was driving through Menlo Park, I went past a Chili's. Most people will know Chili's Bar and Grill. The irony about Chili's is it started in Dallas, and I used to go to the original Chili's when I was in high school. It's where we would go after football games. So Chili's had a particular resonance for me as it felt like home. And so here it was. I just sort of randomly drove across this Chili's in Menlo Park. Ended up sitting in the window, sitting up in the front, you know, having dinner. And then I ended up living, you know, down the street from that Chili's. I lived there for like two years. My kids were born a mile and a half from there. To this day, I live like, you know, the Chili's isn't there anymore. I live like five miles away from where that location was. So it was sort of a, it was a very powerful moment for me in terms of how these little creature comforts or little pieces of familiarity can make a place feel more like home. Was there something else that made it feel like home other than Chili's? Like what? Did you feel connected to in the Bay Area? <laughs> we're totally, we're totally losing Meredith here. And I'm, I'm not so quite sorry. sure what it I was because have... you have to, you kind of have to go back to Chili's in 1990. It was not the baby back rib thing, and it was and just that's a exactly. Different... I have the yeah, theme so you're song stuck in my on the head, song. I get it. And I was actually going to ask you if you felt whole and complete and at home with the baby back ribs. Yeah, but no, I've never had the baby back ribs. We had tacos and old timers. That's what survived from the Chili's on Greenville Avenue that I used to go to after high school football games. The Chili's that it is today, where it's a big giant chain, is not the same thing, but there is some familiarity. And so that was meaningful. You know, there wasn't really anything else that I carried over to the Bay Area from Dallas. It didn't feel familiar. What I found here, I think, was what I came to refer to as a community of curiosity. You know, I found people who I thought were intellectually curious and mentally similar. Not that there's not plenty of those people in many other parts of the country as well. They just happen to be concentrated in the Bay Area, at least at that time. In addition, there was, you know, in 1990, there was still sort of this interesting hippie vibe that ran through Silicon Valley. Because really the heart and soul of Silicon Valley, it kind of came out of the counterculture movement as much as it did out of technology. It's really the intersection of cyberculture and counterculture that to me made Silicon Valley so interesting and inspiring and innovative. And that was sort of my experience through the 90s. I think once advertising showed up, it dramatically changed the culture and the tenor of Silicon Valley for the worse, like much more for the worse. And I, I remember in the 2000s, when the internet really started taking off and all the finance people started showing up and you would see the guys with the fancy shoes and the slacks. And it was like, where the hell did these folks come from? Like, these are not sort of the 
you know, the hippie type sort of Stanford professor folks that were talking about networking theory and stuff like that. I mean, Silicon Valley today is a very different place from where it was when I moved here. So what's really interesting is that you are such a great storyteller. You know, I always joke with you, you're like the human encyclopedia. You've got so much knowledge in your brain. One of the things I'm curious about is your journaling. I know you talk about a lot of this, but I know you also write a lot of this down. Tell us about why you started journaling and kind of where it's brought you today. Yeah, so I have to start with the admission that my journaling is a little obsessive. It doesn't take as much time as people might initially think when I describe the whole thing. It's, you know, 20, 30 minutes a day tops, but it does sound a little obsessive. We'll start with the first journal. So when my kids were preteens, they started asking me what it was like when I grew up. And I honestly couldn't remember. I, I just couldn't remember the family dinners. I couldn't remember our routines. I couldn't remember what it was like in elementary school. Like, I just didn't, I didn't have any of that. None of it had been imprinted in me in a long time term way. And so I thought it'd be interesting just to start keeping a journal where I could share with them, you know, my experience as an adult, as their parent, what it was like as they were starting high school or going to soccer games or going on their first dates or prom or, or whatever. So I wanted to keep a record for them of what it was like being their parent with the intention of giving them that record when they were older or potentially giving it to their kids and sort of like, hey, you know, now that you're an adult, you can see what it was like for me when you, you know, when you were young. Because we're all kind of in this together, right? I wanted to, in some ways, I kind of wanted to break down this idea that like parents know everything or something like that. So at the same time, I wanted to start recording memories. I wanted to kind of record future memories for my kids, I guess. I also had watched a documentary about Watergate, and I was blown away by the headlines that came out during that time. And of course, we all know how Watergate turned out. It, you know, the, all those investigations actually turns out that's like a two-year process, right? And so when you watch a documentary, it all seems super compressed. But in reality, it unfolded over a long period of time. And I was very curious, sort of just really puzzled by what it must have been like to be an adult who was politically aware when it was going on. But of course, we all now know how it turned out. So you can't really go back and ask people what it was like, because unless they really wrote down contemporaneous accounts, their memories are all polluted by how things worked out. So then I, I also got attached to this idea of be interesting as an adult to write down what it was like in the moment while you were going through these things. And so it was sort of those twin motivations of wanting to record kind of day-to-day what was happening in my kids' lives and what was happening in current events. And it took me a while to finally find a method, but I eventually started buying these Moleskin daily planners. So there's a page dedicated to each day. They have a stamp on the top. It's, you know, whatever day of the week and the date. And I'm ADD enough and obsessive enough that you just get really attached to never leaving a blank page. If it was just an open-ended journal, it's really easy to run long, run short, skip a day. Like, it doesn't really matter. But with these things, it's like every day, there's this one five and a half by eight and a half page. Turns out it's about 150 words. Now I've been writing in these journals. This is my 10th year of writing this, what I call my personal journal. And, you know, for the first few years, I didn't complete all the pages. The last five years, I've got 365 pages for the last five, six years. Uh, so in my case, I have, you know, my kids going through high school, college applications, going to college, dating, all that sort of stuff, all the ups and downs and realities of family. And then in the background, I've got all the, you know, the Hillary and Trump run up the whole four years of Trump's presidency and kind of what I was thinking day by day is all that stuff was unfolding, you know, the most recent presidential election. So it's, you know, it's interesting to have all that stuff and to be writing it down in real time. When COVID happened, you know, what, what you learn when you do this 
um, for one, like I write these journals to give to my kids. I write them for other people to read. So you write in a different way because I'm not trying to open up some huge emotional bag. You know, I'm not, I'm not trying to complain about my marriage, not that I would, or any of that sort of stuff. I'm not using it to work out interpersonal issues. It's a logbook. Yeah, yeah, it's a logbook. That's a good way to describe it. That's my personal journal. About six years ago, my personal journal was starting to get overrun by all these stories of Silicon Valley because you know it was really the run-up to sort of the, the Web 2.0 stuff. So at that point, I started a second journal that was just about work stuff. And it turned out that I started that journal the same year I started at Pinterest. And I was having trouble kind of keeping up with that journal. And then I realized, oh, I should just take notes from the day for my job. And then I started counting the days of my job not because I was marking time like I was a prisoner. I just came to think of my job like a presidential term. Like I had four years and I needed to accomplish as much as I could in four years. And if I started counting the days, it would create a certain sense of urgency to try to get things done. And so in my current job now at ThoughtSpot and my past job at Pinterest, even in the space between those two, so I've kind of counted the days as a way of marking time. So I have notes from every day I was at Pinterest. I have notes from every day I've been at ThoughtSpot. That's also been an incredible tool as a leader and as a manager because it helps you understand the rhythms of what's happening in the company, the rhythms of what's happening with your team, your own personal emotional rhythms. It also turns out that when you write, you may start with one idea. Like all my pages start with a headline. You mentioned the storytelling. Like every page is kind of a story. So here's what the story is going to be about. And then almost like a fiction writer, you just start writing. And by the time you get to the end, it's usually someplace that's not quite where you thought it was going to go. And it's usually somewhere in the middle of there, you have an insight that you wouldn't have otherwise had. So my journals are really a way of externalizing my thinking. It's not for the product of the journal itself. It's the act of writing stuff down and seeing where your brain goes with it. And so it's become a very powerful and useful process and practice for me, both, again, kind of processing what's happening in the world personally and then what's happening professionally. And now I have like this massive kind of ridiculous stack of moleskin journals. There's like 20 of them or something. So, And now you also have a podcast. And now I do have a podcast as well. Yeah. And I, and I actually have notes about the podcast. So like I was able to go back in the journal and reference when was the first time Aaron and I talked about the podcast. And I could actually track the evolution of the show through a handful of different entries because, you know, we've been working on the show for over a year now. And it evolved quite a bit during that time. So it's interesting to have that evolution in contemporaneous notes as well. So tell me, what was the impetus of starting this podcast with Aaron? Well, mine and Aaron's relationship was kind of interesting and is worth spending a little moment on. So Aaron had written an article that I think I saw on Medium, must have been four or five years ago at least. 2016. 2016, yeah. And I was impressed with the article. I read a lot of design articles. I'm actually not impressed by many of them. But this particular article, I was really impressed by. And I just dropped him a random note. I can't remember if it's through LinkedIn or email or something. But I just got in touch with him. And he was gracious enough to respond. And we got on a phone call together. And in our very first conversation, we started talking about career and how we thought about what we wanted to do with our lives and where we were. Because at that point, we were both established in the design field. We weren't quite sure how far we wanted to go. And so our relationship sort of started off on that angle from the beginning. And I think we just hit it off and bonded and have stayed attached ever since. And then he contacted me not too long after the pandemic started, after the lockdown in March of last year, March of 2020, and broached the idea of doing a podcast to sort of explore what was happening with the world of work and, and how all that was shifting. And so we, we talked about it for a while. It took a, probably a month, month and a half, two months to figure out the name, kind of talked about the format, 
know, we started interviewing some people, decided that that maybe wasn't quite working, but the interviews helped us get some insight to how we might want to change the show. Meredith, we interviewed you. You and I had worked together at Pinterest, which was awesome. And, you know, I very much wanted to find a way to get you involved in the show. And so we brought you on as a producer, but then we just had to have you as a co-host. And that, I think that's when the show really started to take shape is when it became the three of us. But the, I think the impetus for the show really was Aaron trying to figure out what he wanted to do professionally. And the podcast became a way to maybe process some of that. And I had also learned, you know, as a world-class procrastinator, I had also learned that the way for me to get things done is to attach myself to a collaboration because it's unlikely that I will let the other person down. And so I've just found for myself that if I want to produce something, I need to create accountability with others. And yeah, and I love working with you guys. So there's an interesting thread in that story in each step of how this show came about, which is this openness and curiosity. And, and that's something I've always admired and I feed off of with you, Bob, is that you have this insatiable curiosity. Listeners can't see, but behind Bob is an incredible shelf of books and he's always reading and learning about things. And as Meredith, you alluded, Bob is cataloging information in his brain because he's curious and he's connecting the dots. But that openness of like, hey, I read an article. I wonder who wrote this and what this person is thinking. I'll just drop them an email. Would you like to have a conversation? And that leads to another thing. And the openness to, hey, I'd love to have my friend Meredith be involved in some way. And it's just like that open curiosity that is part of who you are that creates opportunity that you really, like you couldn't have planned it out. It just, it unfolds. Yeah. Well, you know, Bill Burnett talked about it in our first episode. You know, curiosity is sort of the thing that keeps this all going. For me, I I think I used to fight my curiosity. I used to be maybe sort of embarrassed. When people call me Wikipedia Bob, I used to sort of take offense or be embarrassed by it. I've I don't respond to it with pride. I, I sort of look at it now and I'm like, well, it's just how my brain functions. You know, we all have different brains. They work different ways in the same way that our bodies work different ways. Just the neurological pattern I have is one of intense curiosity. And I think it was really late in life that I learned to stop fighting that and just sort of said, oh, my brain's going to do what my brain's going to do. And I should just kind of feed it because it's my brain is really only happy when I'm consuming information. And then the trick for me is how I, you know, instead of just consuming information all the time, how do I synthesize it and turn it into something that's useful, not only so I can share it with others, but also that act of synthesizing is really useful for me. It's how I process it. You know, I will say one thing about connecting with others, and, and it kind of speaks a little bit to the journaling too. When you journal every day and you're trying to make predictions about current events and how things are going to work out, you figure out really quickly that you're incredibly bad at predicting the future as is everyone. You have this incredible bias to only remember the things you picked out right, but you pick out so much stuff that's wrong. And so there's a humility that comes from it that in my case makes me just want to connect with others and sort of say, hey, well, I'm thinking this, what are you thinking? And then together we maybe produce some sort of different shared understanding. I think the one thing, and this is more of an observation slash compliment than a question for you, Bob, that I hope the listeners also see and maybe take away is that your curiosity doesn't inhibit how you approach things, which I think is really interesting. I think a lot of people who would read an article or read a book or see somebody at a conference would be like, oh, that person's really cool, or I really like that article, but would like never have the guts to email that person or reach out to them 
And I think the one thing that you've shown me and taught me personally is that like at the end of the day, everybody's just human and everybody just wants to have a conversation. And it doesn't matter if they're a New York Times bestseller or, you know, somebody who's written something on Medium for themselves. It's a way to encourage you to step out of your comfort zone and talk to people that you otherwise probably wouldn't talk about. And I think the more you do it, the more comfortable you get doing it. And the more you realize that the world isn't such a scary place. And a lot of people do really want to have these conversations. And so I think what I'm really excited with this podcast and with you and exploring this podcast with you and Aaron is to keep engaging with people and helping listeners understand that we're just curious people and we're going through everything that they're going through as well. And we want to try to find the experts, not only to help ourselves, but to help them too. So it's, it's a selfish pursuit, isn't yeah. it? Like we are reconsidering in our own ways, each at a different stage in our life, which I think is also very interesting. And I enjoy that, Bob, you've kind of thought through some of these things maybe more thoroughly than Meredith and I have because you've had a little more time to explore it. Yeah, like the questions we're exploring on the show are timeless questions. You know, they've been written about for thousands and thousands of years, and they are the human condition, and nobody has them sorted out. We're all trying to make our own way through life. There are no experts on this. There are only people that have thought about it a little bit more. Nobody has the answers because the answers are incredibly personal. So what's fascinating for me about the show is there's just so many different angles and so many different inputs and so many different people to talk to. And those people are also part of the community of curiosity and they do want to talk. They want to share their ideas as well. And, you know, writing, all of us have written books. I mean, writing a book is a very lonely pursuit, but it's ultimately about trying to connect with readers. And it's a conversation that you have, that you start on your own, but you kind of want to end up having with other people. And so for me, being able to reach out to authors and bring them on the show is just a great way to open up and try to find out more of what's going on in their book. Lastly, I'm really excited to be doing this podcast with you. And I am so excited to see where our journey takes us. And it was so great getting to know a little bit more about Bob. Thanks, Meredith. It is uh, seeing you guys every week is a highlight for me, for sure. Like I love doing the show just because we get to spend time together. It's an incredible journey and one that I hope goes on for a very, very long time. Oh, and Bob, I want my baby back, baby back, baby back, baby back. Baby back. <laughs> Reconsidering is created by Meredith Blackbrandt, Bob Baxley, and Aaron Walter, with editing help from Brian Paik of Pacific Audio. Original music for the show was written and performed by Kimo Meraki. You'll find a full transcript of this episode and all the links mentioned at reconsidering.org. If you've enjoyed the episode, hit subscribe in your favorite podcast player. And if you'd like to support what we're doing, We'd be grateful if you'd leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. It'll help others discover the show. Until next time, remember life like the seasons is ever-changing, but satisfaction can be found every day when we tune in.